Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The World in 10, your daily roundup of the biggest stories from across the world, written by our correspondents and contributors at The Times of London. I'm Eleanor Shearwood, and today we'll hear what it's really like reporting in Russia and have the secrets to picking successful stocks, maybe. First, though, the Ukrainian fighter pilots who say they rely on nerves of steel. Outnumbered with outdated kit. That's how the Sunday Times' Louise Callahan describes the Ukrainian Air Force. She's been spending time with a unit, learning about what the last 16 months of full-scale war have been like for them. And it's fair to say they've really been through a lot. They faced Mariupol and Snake Island, and now they're in Bakhmut. That's the city which has seen some of the most intense fighting since the invasion began. The pilots Louise has spoken to recently survived machine gun fire attacking their helicopter – And the way they cope with that might surprise you because it essentially centres around distraction. They talk about anything else, music, girls, what animals they might see below them. They told her about how they receive marriage proposals from the sky when they're flying at a lower level and how recently they threw a bottle of cognac down to a very grateful elderly man in the middle of no man's land. But all of this compares to the really harsh reality they're facing In fact, Louise asked them how they measure up to their adversaries. They have uh, from 10 to 100 times more uh, crafts than we have. Only courage, morale and uh, experience helps you. There's a really powerful quote from Maxim in the piece. He's a 29-year-old major. And he says the Russians completely understand that the Ukrainian forces can do nothing to them. Louise told us why that is. All they want to do is fly more. So at the moment, they have to restrict the number of of missions that they do because they just don't have enough rockets. And, you know, these aren't expensive ballistic missiles. These are these are unguided rockets that that they're looking for. And the helicopters that they're flying, it's important to say uh, that the, the crew that I spoke to, they're flying an MIA which is used by by most other countries as you know, a troop transport helicopter. But they basically sort of, you know, they have like a bunch of rockets strapped to either side and a machine gun in the front, and they just go and use that. The Russian Air Force is is so much bigger and so much better equipped. The Ukrainians are flying very old Soviet-designed models. The, the Russians have some Soviet-designed equipment too, but they have the kind of renovated version, the newer updates, and that just gives them a huge advantage on the battlefield. The whole piece offers a really remarkable insight into their bravery and it's well worth a read. You can do so at thetimes.co.uk. Now to the other side of the wall. What's it like living in Russia? 
Well, Steve Rosenberg has been there since 1987 as a reporter, and he's now the BBC's Russian editor. And even though he's a Western journalist, he's been able to stay there since the invasion of Ukraine began. Now, the Sunday Times' Rosie Kinchins interviewed Steve for the magazine, and here's what she was told about what daily life is like in Moscow. There's propaganda everywhere. So he was saying that, you know, the IKEA billboards that he used to drive past are now state propaganda images of soldiers fighting. Um, and that, yeah, it's a, just a very different country. He's, and he said that before, he felt that Russian people used to feel that they could challenge government and get things to change. And now that feeling has sort of died a bit and that he feels that there's sort of a shrug um, and an acceptance that what is happening will happen and that they don't have any control over it. What's really interesting is how Steve and his small team, he's just got a producer and two cameramen, and they're constantly having to try and work through the Kremlin's propaganda. And Steve actually says trying to figure out the truth is now similar to the old days of what's called Kremlinology, because they were constantly trying to figure out what's going on with the Kremlin by looking at who's standing next to who during events like big parades. He's also there at a time when Russia is clamping down on journalist visas. Now, for Steve, there aren't any official restrictions on what he can report on. And he thinks that's because the Kremlin's almost using him to show the West it doesn't care. Steve says he feels pretty safe most of the time, but he can remember the day that the Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovich was arrested. He says earlier that day he was talking to a Russian journalist who told him he didn't want to be in news anymore. And then literally a few hours later, maybe 12 hours later, uh, the news broke that you know, US journalist Evan Gershkovich had been arrested uh, and accused of spying. And with his arrest, all the assumptions that being a Western journalist with a foreign passport uh, somehow gave you sort of Teflon uh, protection from um, prosecution or trouble here, they went out of the window. Steve knows his position is precarious. Journalist visas have been shortened from a year to just three months. He says they can pull the plug on him any time. Let's talk about something lighter now. So buying tickets for big events used to be quite straightforward. You'd just head to the venue to queue or ring up and book over the phone. And then later it moved online and you'd refresh website pages until you finally got through. But with Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, the game seems to have changed again. Tickets for the European leg go on sale this week. But if you wanted a chance to see the three-hour show, you're already too late. You had to register last month for a code to maybe be in with a chance. And to make matters more complicated, fans who bought her last album got to try early last week. It's no real surprise then that getting tickets is being called The Great War. Yep, that is one of her songs. And after seeing the difficulties fans in the US faced, European Swifties have been desperately searching for advice online on how to prepare for battle. This is my advice if you're trying to get Taylor Swift tickets for the general sale on Monday. I think the general sailors, correct me if I'm wrong. Firstly, yes, I did get tickets, which I'm absolutely over the moon about. We were able to get some tickets in the pre-sale, which I'm so, so grateful for. I just survived the Great War and managed to get Taylor Swift tickets. So um, I had the Midnight's pre-sale. Here is everything I did to get Tour tickets in 10 minutes. I used my laptop. I opened one browser with Chrome. I did not use the app. So has this complexity actually made anything easier? Well, Jonathan Dean's been writing about it for the Sunday Times and told us it won't be all smiles next week. There's a lot of different ticket purgatories. Last week, obviously, the pre-sale people who'd bought Midnight's really thought they were in with a chance. Lots of them were left disappointed. 
so even next week with the code, it's still going to be those things which I think we've all seen before, whether you're buying tickets for concerts or football matches, when you go in and you see the number queue that you're in. People will log on about 10, 10 seconds after the on-sale time and they'll see that they're, you know, 50,000th in the queue or something. There's going to be a lot of d- disappointed people next week. We all know dogs are a man's best friend, but now they could be even better friends by helping their owners pick successful stocks. Well, at least one of them can. He's an eight-year-old Maltese cross in Germany named Freddy. He's seriously impressive, beating AI and most conventional investment funds. Now, this is a story that was written by The Times Berlin correspondent Oliver Moody, and my colleague Amy Gill spoke to him. Thanks again for coming on World in 10, Oliver. Can you tell me a little bit about this experiment, this stock showdown between the dog and AI? A German business magazine called Wirtschaftswoche got one of its staff writers to um, hold a contest between his dog, Freddy, and ChatGPT, which is one of the large language model conversational AIs. And they were each given a kind of theoretical portfolio of just about just over 19,000 euros to spend on whichever stocks they felt like picking. Uh, and in Freddy the dog's case, this was by putting slips of paper on the floor, each with a treat on top and seeing which one he gravitated towards. And how was it that Freddy was able to beat AI? Well, um, over the next six weeks, the 15 companies that Freddy picked delivered an aggregate return of 13.5% which is about uh, four times the, the level that ChatGPT's portfolio achieved. It's also several times the return you'd have got on most kind of expert-managed investment funds over that period. And finally, while this is the first experiment with AI, it's not the first time researchers have used random chance to guess stocks, right? Yeah, it's, it's really important to, to stress here that Freddie is not some kind of idiot-savant Um, or a stock market genius. This is the latest installment of a very long-running debate in financial theory about whether the movements of stock prices are essentially random or whether expert human beings can can do a good job of second-guessing them. That was The World Intends Amy Gill talking to The Times Berlin correspondent Oliver Moody. And that's all we've got time for today. But before I go, as I record this, the Wimbledon final is underway and the Times will have all of the updates and analysis you need on that. And we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.